Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. If you missed it last week, we announced our third, yes, our third cohort of Agents of Change Fellows. It is an exciting time. We have a little bit of overlap with Cohort 2, so we have all kinds of fun things in the works. You can see all of the new smiling faces at ehn.org under the Special Projects tab and find out what institutions are from and what they're working on. We're very excited about this group and you will be very soon hearing their voices, reading their ideas, and seeing their research. We're really excited about this. We will continue to bring you podcasts and essays from past fellows as Agents of Change is not a one and done. We want to keep offering them a platform and build this program as the place to be for leaders in the environmental justice space. Okay, today I'm talking to Karthik Amarnath, a policy specialist for Push Buffalo and an MD and MPH candidate at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University. Karthik is a thinker. He has such an incredible mind. And he talks about how his family's past informs his present, his advocacy work on clean energy, and how oppression and injustice manifest in illness, and how we can better think about this in the medical and public health fields. Enjoy. All right. Well, I would like to welcome Karthik Amarnath to the podcast. Karthik, how are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks for having me. And where are you? Where are you coming at us from today? I am coming to you from uh, East Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool part of the city. Well, thanks for joining us today. I, uh, I'm really happy to talk to you. And I want to start, as I do with most people, going way back. Uh, and you've You've described your identity as a transnational assemblage of histories, migrations, and struggles, which I just love the way you put that. I was wondering if you can fill us in on some of your family's background and how this history helped shape your career path in public health and environmental justice. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do so. Um, So I guess I can start with where both my parents come from. My mother mother is uh, Malaysian Indian, so her ancestors migrated to Malaysia from South India under the British Empire, and they were sent to Malaysia to work in the rubber plantations um, in, at the time, the colony was called Malaya. Um, And through that form of labor, um, my mother's people, uh, my mother's community essentially supplied the world with cheap rubber, um, and that Cheap rubber was essential for the automotive boom, the global automotive boom. So things like Fordism, the development of um, industrial cities like Detroit, um, automotive cities in the United States, the federal highway system, all of that was possible um, economically, socially, politically because of the labor of this community. Um, And where that community is now in Malaysia, is, you know, they're more or less experiencing the brunt of a a highly racialized society. Um, Malaysian society has a lot of contempt for Malaysian Indians. Um, They were forcibly displaced from the rubber estates as those, um, as the rubber industry became more mechanized and, uh, um, and a lot of the rubber plantations were also converted to palm oil plantations. Um, So, you know, Malaysian Indians experienced a great migration similar to the great migration that we found um, in the United States, uh, the two great migrations from the South. Um, So a landless people who um, now really struggle to survive and face a lot of oppression and have been forgotten by uh, their country of origin, many of which, you know, come from India as well as some other South Asian nations. Um, My father's side, uh, my father's Sri Lankan Tamil. And I guess for those who don't know, Sri Lanka is a country that experienced one of the longest uh, protracted civil wars in modern history. And that was um, a civil war between the ethnic Tamil minority, um, uh, 
a rebel force known as the Tamil Tigers who are fighting um, on behalf of the ethnic Tamil minority. Um, although not everyone in the Tamil community subscribed to their politics, my family being one of them. Um, versus the Sinhalese Buddhist majority. And basically the fight was um, for an ethnic Tamil homeland in Tamil majority areas of the island uh, as a response to the majoritarian practices of the post-colonial Sri Lankan government, which basically situated um, Buddhism as the primary religion and, and sort of uh, evoked Sri Lanka as like the Sinhalese and Buddhist homeland. Um, so Tamils who are predominantly Hindu and Christian, as well as other minority communities, such as Sri Lankan Muslims were marginalized under that arrangement. Um, the Sri Lankan civil war is where modern suicide bombing was created. The Tamil tigers sort of perfected and exported that method. Um, Sri Lanka, even though it has a population similar to the size of metropolitan New York City, at one time had one of the highest uh, incidences of enforced disappearances. So people um, who forcibly were disappeared and never heard from again. Um, and, you know, now a lot the, the war ended um, in very violent means. There's a Channel 4 documentary called Sri Lanka's Killing Fields, which uh, go, which uh, shows leaked footage of, of um, what amounts to war crimes that were committed by all, uh, all armed entities, all armed uh, parties during the final days of the Civil War. Um, the United Nations estimates that close to 80,000 civilians were killed, uh, potentially more, um, according to other studies. And a lot of the root causes of the civil war um, still have not been addressed. The primary grievances of Tamils as well as other minority communities and the radicalization of the Tamil community, which led to armed violence and an armed uprising. Um, we see that radicalization you know, uh, happening in parallel nowadays in other communities such as, such as the Sri Lankan Muslim community. And, um, you know, we saw those devastating uh, Easter bombings uh, not too long ago. So the roots of the violence have not been addressed and the violence, formal armed conflict has only ceased uh, because of um, because of the indiscriminate killing and targeting of, of civilians. And, uh, you know, the war ended in a lot of violence. Uh, there was not some sort of like peace agreement reached. So, you know, the, the civil war, as well as ethnic based oppression, um, they very much have an afterlife uh, right now. And that reverberates in the diaspora. And on my mo in my mom's case, you know, there's a reverberation in, in that diaspora, too. Um, and a lot of those issues that my parents faced in the countries that they came from, you know, manifested in sort of like our lives at home. Um, you know, my family um, is afflicted with a lot of diseases that now we understand as directly correlated to um, experiences of trauma um, and recognizing that those traumatic experiences are uh, the product of oppression and structural violence um, and, you know, systemic marginalization. That's sort of what, um, what prompted me to look at health issues um, from a justice oriented lens and a lens of, of inequity and injustice and what to do about those realities. Um, and yeah, that, that eventually led me to understand environmental justice as a concept. Um, I was at an internship with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Center for Environmental Health within the CDC. I was doing an epidemiological study on the living and worth, working conditions of migrant farm workers in South Georgia and came to understand that a primary modulator of health inequity um, is just how our society is arranged in relation to 
the environment that we utilize for resources, for sustenance, um, and how exposure to hazards and risks um, change based on how society is organized. So environmental justice became the primary entry point from which I wanted to understand public health issues, um, especially in an era of climate change um, and public health issues, you know, according to um, justice and, and equity uh, perspectives. I can't help but th- uh, think about, so my family are, I came from Polish immigrants uh, who were escaping what we believe to be Russian oppression in the eastern mm-hmm. half of Poland. And they went to Detroit and worked in the auto plants. So when you were talking about Malaysia, I would kept thinking that you and I have this link where my <laughs> my grandparents were probably touching some of the parts, uh, you know, made over in Malaysia. Um, but thank you for that. I, I, I'm wondering if you, you seem to have such a kind of firm understanding of, of your family history on both sides. Was that something that was just talked about at home or was this something that you kind of on your own decided to, I need to learn about this and figure out where I come from? You know, it's, it's interesting. Like it so I mean, the short answer is no. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with trauma and, you know, my, my dad in particular very rarely brought up the things that he experienced. Um, and, you know, in, in my case, being American and having parents come from these parts of the world that aren't really a part of um, American discourse, I guess, there, I think we struggle to find a language to articulate what the experiences were that my parents went through. Um, and then pair, pair that with sort of the stereotypes around South Asians, particularly Indian presenting people in the United States, that of being a model minority. Um, you know, my, the nuances of my parents' experiences and my family's experience at large kind of get erased as we sort of got swallowed up into this model minority narrative. And then, you know, that kind of changed into, uh, you know, post 9-11 into like, uh, I, I, Sometimes tell people when I when I was growing up, I grew up in different countries, but the years I spent in the United States, I was I had to traverse between being seen as a nerd and a terrorist. And that was sort of like what I existed as in my skin, you know, and so the the. I didn't know who I was, Uh, I didn't I wasn't able to articulate what I was experiencing and and I knew that what I was experiencing was different from what the world was telling me I was supposed to experience, which was an ascendant model minority sort of experience or like, you know, um, having affinity for like terrorism or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it was, uh, was me doing the groundwork myself to try and understand who it is that I am and what I come from, like what experiences um, brought me into being, you know, and, um, you know, my, my father, for example, like escaped the Sri Lankan civil war and went to Malaysia. So without the Sri Lankan civil war, like I wouldn't be alive today. So in a way I'm an, I am like the alchemy of a a very serious, serious and significant tragedy that, that took place, you know, and what do I do with that reality? I have to take on that as a responsibility. And so that's sort of like where the pursuit of understanding where I come from comes from, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been deeply rewarding and informs every area of my life and how I try to navigate it. Um, so you mentioned uh, starting to, to gain an understanding and appreciation for environmental justice as kind of central to your work. And before you returned to medical school, you were the energy planner of the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the disproportionate health burdens caused by our current energy system and how you all were trying to address that and perhaps any victories you all had. Uh, yeah, sure. So the energy system how we understand it, you know, commonly is just you turn on 
the lights or you turn on the fan or, you know, your appliances and what have you, but what it takes um, in order to do so, there are a lot of injustices laden within the entirety of the energy supply chain, right? Um, From production to distribution to consumption. Um, When it comes to uh, production, for example, um, more than two thirds of African-Americans live within a 30 mile radius of a coal fired power plant or an oil or natural gas refinery, um, according to the NAACP. Um, And a 30 mile radius is sort of the, um, the radius in which the most pronounced negative health outcomes from out of stack emissions um, are experienced. Uh, So epidemiologically speaking, that would help to explain why African-Americans have lower rates of smoking, um, but higher rates of lung cancer. Um, It's not the only reason, but it's a huge contributor at the very least. Um, So that's, that's on the production side of things. Um, And just one small example. And then on the consumption side of things, you know, I think there are very robust conversations going on around the housing crisis and and gentrification and how legacies of redlining and and segregation in cities have produced sort of the um, unsustainable conditions that we have right now in relation to housing. And energy plays a huge role in housing insecurity and housing injustice. Um, So on the consumption side of things, a disproportionate amount of um, a household's income that goes towards energy expenditures um, falls on low-income communities, communities of color. And the reason why more income from these households is devoted to paying their utility bills largely has to do with the fact that the housing stock that most communities of color and um, low-income communities across the country live in, you know, are not, um, the housing stock is relatively old. Um, it's not well-maintained. And a lot of that just has to do with, again, histories of, of redlining and, and segregation and planned shrinkage, um, you know, in, in parts of the country in places like Buffalo, where I'm working currently, um, or I'm working with an organization based in Buffalo, a lot of the housing stock there, they describe it as as walls made of Swiss cheese for all intents and purposes um, when it comes to the weather and just like climate control. Um, And because of that, you got to pay more into, you know, keeping the heater running or keeping the air conditioner uh, on during increasingly frequent and and more pronounced extreme weather events like um, heat waves. Um, So, you know, what what that amounts to is a situation where families have to make the decision between keeping the lights on and keeping the heat on or bringing food to the table, you know, and and this challenge of how to make that choice um, is sort of an ongoing chronic situation of crisis that is really going unaddressed. Um, and we even find inequities in the solutions, right? So like as renewable energy is becoming more affordable, as the solar market, for example, is expanding, we don't see that translating into um, the the nascent renewable energy industry trying to undo any of the racial inequities that we found in the traditional energy economy. So there's gross underrepresentation when it comes to um, when it comes to hiring people of color, hiring women to um, to uh, sustainable jobs, um, well-paying jobs, jobs with leadership in the solar industry, for example. Um, A lot of the energy bureaucrats at state level energy agencies and authorities, you know, are not people of color and don't have a racial analysis on how the solutions need to um, facilitate a transition to a renewable and regenerative economy that is fundamentally just. Um, So, yeah, we have a catch 22 where the traditional energy economy um, 
was harming uh, historically oppressed communities in much the same way as every other sector of the economy does. Um, And then as we are trying to push for solutions with a huge amount of backlash, obviously coming from vested political interests in maintaining the traditional energy economy, there isn't enough of a racial analysis or a justice-oriented praxis there as well. And um, yeah, both need to happen. In terms of victories, I mean, I think this happened soon after I left the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, or NIJA for short, but um, New York State passed what is considered one of the most aspirational uh, forms of climate legislation in the country, if not the world. Um, it's called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And uh, basically what this legislation um, what this legislation puts forth is, uh, you know, sort of the basis for a transition to a regenerative economy by demanding an aggressive cap on emissions um, e- across all sectors of the economy and then ensuring that um, revenues generated from that cap and the transition to a renewable energy economy, those revenues are reinvested strategically to address historic harms um, committed by the energy industry as well as other polluting industries. Um, So investment in frontline communities and frontline workers as well. Um, So that's really exciting. And and I don't know if I had a direct contribution in the passing of that, like I wasn't in their lobbying, but at the very least I can say that, you know, I was in meetings with, um, you know, the Cuomo administration and, and uh, officials at the various energy authorities and agencies and departments at the state level, as well as at the city level in New York city. And, and we really were unapologetic in, in bringing forth the language of a just transition and what that looks like and how the energy system is implicated in injustices related to um, historic realities like redlining and, um, and uh, you know, bankability and how there's segregation around uh, the ability to get a loan and, and how that relates to the energy system. And so we, you know, we were just, bringing forth a racial and social justice analysis and an environmental justice analysis where they're into spaces that were devoid of one for a long time. And I think that opened up the possibility for um, legislation like the CLCPA to get passed. And, you know, now there's going to be a lot of work to make sure that implementation of such an aspirational policy um, is true to form. One of the common themes with uh, this Agents of Change program is people often talk about this disconnect between kind of ac- mostly academic researchers and the communities they're researching. And I'm wondering, you know, you were working here on the ground in tandem with communities. Um, I'm wondering what you learned that maybe you wouldn't have learned just by attending university. Wow. That's, that's an interesting question. There's so much to say there and I don't know how to start. <laughs> um, you know, I guess I mean, I don't want to dismiss academia at large. I mean, the the people who I would argue without sounding melodramatic, the people who like saved my life and really like gave, helped me orient what it is my purpose is and just how to be in the world were scholars, academics, my mentor and my mentors in college. Um, But, you know, I guess what's what's really important to consider in terms of academia and and scholarship is that i don't know in in order to do in order to do scholarship that has a public impact you really have to like go against the grain in a lot of ways i mean i'm not in academia but from my understanding like the necessity to get published and you know the uh insecurity around tenure and just the fact that that is becoming less and less of a viable option for a lot of academics. Um, You know, things like community-based participatory research, where you consult with the very communities that you are working with and doing research about, um, 
during every phase of the research process, that unfortunately, I would imagine becomes a secondary thing for a lot of people. Whereas for us, you know, the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, the board of directors. So it's an alliance of grassroots organizations throughout New York City, four boroughs of the five, sorry, Staten Island, um, four of the five boroughs, grassroots organizations that come from those boroughs that are serving the most environmentally overburdened communities. Um, and the board of directors of the alliance are the very members of the alliance, you know? So there, there is no hierarchy of leadership in the same way that you would see like in a corporate office or even in a university. Um, the people who determine the direction of the alliance, where resources are allocated, what sorts of, um, what public officials do we work with versus what public officials do we protest outside of the office of sometimes it's the same public official <laughs> depending on the issue um you know all of the decisions that are made for the organization um are informed by the very communities that they serve and that priority um which is very much an existential question for the alliance and for organizations similar to that alliance um that kind of priority is not integrated into the DNA of how a university is run, you know, or how, um, how a think tank or a research center or a laboratory operates. Um, and I think it would do well for that, for that sort of orientation to be more of a prominent feature in the universities that we see in the United States and abroad. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, for sure. And I've been asking everybody this question, and it's just as big and broad, if not more so. And that is, what is a defining moment or an event that shaped your identity? Defining moment and event that shaped my identity. Um, there are many. And it's hard to pinpoint one above others. Um but I guess I, I will say, you know, I'll, I'll bring it back full circle and just talk about my family. So the a time in my life that really still means a lot to me today was um, springtime of 2009. And I was graduating from high school. And around that time when I'm, you know, going to be moving out of my parents' house pretty soon and, and enter into this new chapter of life um, and adulthood, my grandfather was rapidly declining from Alzheimer's disease. At the same time, he was losing his vision and hearing. Um, so he was losing his sensory experience as well as um, his sense of reality, you know, uh, his cognition around that same time. So that was my mother's father, the Malaysian side of my family. Um, Around that same time was the, the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War. The Sri Lankan Civil War officially ended um, in May of 2009. And just learning about those two experiences, I mean, living through those two experiences from a distance, you know, I, I don't want to claim like I, I was in harm's way or I bore the brunt of what people went through. But those two things happening around the same time and the inability for my mother and her family to express the pain and trauma of seeing the decline of my grandfather and, and the helplessness around that. And then the helplessness of the Tamil community, the Tamil diaspora who were desperately protesting around the world and occupying highways and, and no one, no government was really responding in, in a meaningful way. Um, that sort of dual, dual experience of helplessness is what really planted the seed for me to be, to try to harness who I am, my identity, my background unapologetically in a way that is of service to others who might share elements of similar experiences you know my, my grandfather's decline could have been prevented had he had equitable access to health care um 
or maybe came from a community that wasn't exposed to the types of hazards that his community was exposed to um, environmentally, politically, socially. Um, and, you know, we, we have the indiscriminate massacre of civilians and, and somebody you would call genocide. Um, in the case of Sri Lanka, we have ethnic cleansing happening around the world right now, you know, and, and just those experiences and how they impacted me, how like the reality of mortality of a family member and then the reality of like a social kind of death, a cultural kind of death um, that came with, you know, the indiscriminate massacre of Tamil civilians and, and the fragmentation of the Tamil community in Sri Lanka and beyond. Um, yeah, that, that is just what has made me who I am today, which is someone who tries to unapologetically fight against sort of the social death of like who I am and who my people are and where we come from. And that doesn't necessarily mean like I preserve our experiences and identities, but just like that's important to me, but more important is that I, that I bear witness with compassion for people who may not necessarily look like me or communities who may not come from the same part of the world or, um, or ethnic background or religious background, but who have experienced oppression um, or harm in one way or another, just humbly and compassionately bear witness and, and find a common human spirit uh, in, in those people and in those populations. And how do I hope to do that through a justice oriented um, practice of, public health to take those experiences at 18 and turn it into what I would consider a, a positive says something to your level of maturity, because at 18, that can go one of two ways or one of many ways. I, I would say when you're experiencing trauma or loss at an age like that, I just know myself um, uh, wouldn't have been able to process things and come out the other side with such a kind of clear and, and positive view of how to turn that around. And now you've taken a position at Push Buffalo, and pardon me if I'm if it's if it's not Push if I'm saying that wrong. But can you tell me a little bit about it? And it's it's kind of how it's trying to integrate both climate adaptation with uh, economic equity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I decided to take a leave of absence from medical school and um, the medical field in general, just given the circumstances of the pandemic and challenges around learning medicine over Zoom. Um, so I put that career path on hold for the time being. And now I'm working at Push Buffalo as uh, their policy specialist. And Push stands for People United for Sustainable Housing. Um, and Push Buffalo started off as an affordable housing organization. And they've you know, from their advocacy around um, uh, affordable housing development on the west side of Buffalo um, in a very diverse, historically marginalized and neglected part of Buffalo, especially in the post-industrial era, um, the organization is really tr transformed into one that, you know, that the locus was um, was affordable housing, but in addressing affordable housing, you have to address, they came to realize that you have to address things like climate resiliency, um, economic justice and injustice, uh, language justice, um, disability justice, uh, gender-based issues, uh, policing. So they, it translated from, you know, starting with affordable housing to really trying to develop community, develop opportunities for community autonomy and self-determination. So um, with that in mind, Push Buffalo established what's called the Green Development Zone, which is um, sort of like a semi-autonomous space in Buffalo that's only growing where, um, where they're really trying to develop um, 
a localized economy that can address that can address historic um, historic harms um, while facilitating a, a just a just transition into a, a local regenerative economy. So um, they're trying to develop community-owned energy systems, for example. They're trying to integrate democracy into the workplace through worker self-directed enterprises, through cooperatives, um, and all of this with a, a lens on race, um, class, gender, um, the environment, indigeneity. Um, and where I fit into that is um, as policy specialists, my responsibility is to look at opportunities and challenges in the policy realm at all levels of governance. So city, county, regional, um, state, federal, uh, look at sort of suss out what the policy landscape is and where opportunities are for policy shifts that could help make real these um, aspirations for community self-determination on the ground along things like energy, green infrastructure, water equity, um, and new economy. So cooperative development, uh, equitable workforce development, and, and local hiring that sort of thing. So um, right now, this is week three on the job. <laughs> so still very fresh, but it's already been so exciting just meeting with different stakeholders and folks involved uh, at various areas of and, and points of intervention, um, just understanding how, unfortunately, we continue, especially at the policy level, to um, to put these various topics and issues, energy, stormwater management, infrastructure management around water, public health, into these silos. And in doing so, really provide a significant barrier to actualizing a just transition. And a just transition requires a more systemic-based approach, you know, so... The nuts and bolts of that, it's kind of like you have a pot of money that's devoted to workforce development around solar, right? Like, how do you ensure that that pot of money is spent in a way that provides sustainable jobs, number one, sustainable jobs for people who are historically marginalized in the renewable energy sector, sustainable jobs for people who are historically burdened by the fossil fuel-based energy sector um, and jobs for people who are, you know, at the forefront of struggles around affordable housing, um, energy burden, uh, displacement from gentrification. Like we really need to look holistically so that both the challenge and the exciting aspect of my job is sort of interjecting in these siloed spaces to try and introduce a more systemic understanding and try to find where initiatives and movement in the policy area in the in policy areas um, along different issues actually have significant overlap um, and and can work together uh, to translate into uh, more opportunities for community self-determination and community ownership of assets um, in, in Buffalo and, you know, pushes really at the forefront of, of these questions, like nationally, they're a part of a few regional and national coalitions. So what happens at push often, you know, um, often knowledge is shared from push with other partners. So uh, it, it could have some really positive repercussions, especially in this new era we're in with a new administration. Um, uh, yeah, it, it can have repercussions beyond Buffalo. And, and all of that is just really exciting. And I'm really grateful to, you know, be a part of those efforts. I don't know how to phrase this question exactly. But when you mentioned your work there, I have one of those brains where if someone says there is a housing problem, I want to go build a house. And then I want to move on to the next problem. Uh, 
and I have a full understanding of the systemic nature of these things, but I just have one of those brains that's like cross one thing off at a time. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have like, how, how do you go about kind of untangling all of the disparate systemic issues? And then kind of your next step is, is maybe going to policymakers, I'm assuming, or, or groups, and then bringing them back together and saying, hey, we have this big ball. How can we address this um you know, holistically or with, with certain legislation that touches on a bunch of these, how, how do how do you approach that, uh, that work? Cause it would, it would just blow my brain up. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, speaking with you, given the, the, um, purpose and vision of agents of change, I can, I can be brunt, uh, blunt about, you know, how like a systemic based analysis is, is needed and, and all of that. But how it translates into these spaces is not necessarily putting forth like you're doing this wrong because it's limited and doesn't have a systems based approach. But it's more like it's more of a finesse, I suppose. Like here we have a pot of money in, you know, the Department of Health and here we have a regulation that's changing um, with the New York Power Authority. And these two things actually speak to each other and that informs that therefore must inform Push Buffalo's advocacy in both of these respective spaces. Um, and it's not necessarily like the withholding of information or lying by omission. Like we're not being open about how, how these, the movement and these two, two supposedly separate arenas have systemic implications, but it's recognizing that like the viability of introducing like demanding that everybody think in a systems-based way, um, that that's a much longer battle to be had, I suppose. Um, and I think, you know, in New York, we have the luxury of, um, of a policy, a comprehensive, at least an attempt at a more comprehensive vision for climate action through the CLCPA that was recently passed. Um, And because of that, we're able to now speak more openly about the systemic realities of the climate crisis and climate change. Um, But, you know, your question also leads to like an intellectual question, right? Like, how is it that we're supposed to approach these fundamentally systemic problems, given the realities of like the siloed, nature of, of our disciplines and our professions, you know, and, and something's got to give. Um, and so, you know, a part of what I hope could be an intellectual project for me, um, you know, as part of push, but beyond that, um, any endeavors I have moving forward will be to develop new types of methodologies and disciplinary forms of understanding and theoretical frameworks that do justice to the systemic implications of the questions that we have at hand, you know, like how can we, how can public health practitioners approach, approach um, health outcomes from a structural perspective? Um, I, I, I think that's where, there's so much room for innovation and there's a lot of excitement there and um, there's a lot to be done (laughs) in in that world. And I guess, you know, what's, what's very much needed is to integrate justice, equity, structural analysis into the very DNA of, of how different disciplines and professions operate. Um, And that's, that's a call for, Every sector, every discipline, every profession, not just public health, not just uh, folks in the energy sector or what have you. Um, it's everywhere. So that's the project. And, and everyone needs to be a part of doing that. Um, and hopefully we find more of that moving forward. So let's take that to one specific sector. So you've had you have an interest and you've had some training in medical school. Um and I'm wondering, what are some of the aspects of health institutions in the healthcare sector writ large that you hope to change or better when it comes to promoting community health? Where do you see some opportunities there? Um, I see a lot. And uh, I've written about this a little bit. Um, but 
basically, you know, who we see, I'll just sort of like lay out a scenario of who we see like in the clinic, right? Um, if we see someone with COPD or uh, we, something like that, like how can we understand the physiology and the physiological realities of our patients in a way that links those realities with the structural realities that led to the health outcomes that we're seeing. So if someone has, if someone from a particular community has lung cancer, for example, a patient of yours, you know, that lung cancer didn't necessarily manifest in a vacuum. It wasn't just some sort of genetic accident and that's it. The, the process of, of, um, of cancer coming about has very much to do with like where that person lives um, and what sorts of resources that person has access to um, and a variety of environmental factors that, that um, are determined by the structures and systems we live within. So as a result of that, Healthcare practitioners, especially clinicians, doctors, nurses, physician assistants, and beyond, have a front row seat to sort of the insults of the system because you see those insults as they manifest physiologically in the patients that you serve, you know, and a lot of that is not necessarily talked about, or if it is, in a, it's not done so in a very robust way, um, unless oftentimes like a clinician will have a degree in something else that provides them with, with um, you know, methodologies uh, in which, and a theoretical framework in which to understand injustice in a robust way, as would, you know, frontline activists or um, organizations serving frontline communities do. Um, and and can participate in envisioning systemic and structural solutions, but a lot of, but for the most part, like structural competency is not taught very well in in medical school, and I'd imagine other ancillary, you know, clinical professions, and that that just really needs needs to change. For example, like we have this new and exciting paradigm known as One Health. Right. Where um, where basically it's trying to put forth transformations in, in medical and health professions and disciplines such that we recognize human health is fundamentally interlinked with the health of environments, non-human species, um, the material environment, et cetera. So, you know, integrating ecosystem science with medical science with genomics and that sort of thing. And that's all really exciting. It shows how humans are fundamentally linked to, um, to non-human entities and actors in the world and, and uh, inspires that we see our connection um, with others. But um, a lot of those connections are transformed and transmuted and modulated based on systems, social systems, economic, political, ecological systems that favor certain people, certain actors over others. And, and that favorability, that discrepancy in who benefits and who gets harmed, those are questions of injustice. So, you know, some, some scholars, uh, one who I really admire, his name is Rob, Robert Wallace, uh, they argue for a structural One Health approach where we understand how ecosystems are organized and how that results in health outcomes and disparities in health outcomes, but also recognizing that the question of how the questions around the organization of those ecosystems and those societies, those are questions of injustice and justice and structures. Um, Another example would be Nancy Krieger um, at Harvard University who talks about eco-social health um, and eco-social theory where, you know, she argues that bodies need to be understood in like, in a way in which we recognize um, health outcomes as embodiments of injustice, you know, and historic oppression. Um, And 
that's just such a rich way of getting to the root of the problem, you know, and, and is not talked about explicitly um, in the healthcare sector. And that's, I don't know, that's, uh, that's really disappointing. It didn't always work that way. Um, and it doesn't have to continue to work that way. Well, Karthik, this has been really illuminating. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I just get the sense that you're a a voracious reader. I have no uh, way of knowing that, but I feel like you are. And my last question is what is the last book you read for fun? For fun. Um, I read when breath becomes air by Paul Kalanidi. Um, He was a neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, um, who uh, passed away right before he completed his residency from terminal lung cancer. And he was writing um, a memoir about um, just what it means to live a meaningful life. Um, And the main takeaway I took from that is that medicine medical field, any field that um, is of service to others, um, human and non-human, that that's not a profession, it's a calling. Um, So that that really stuck with me. Awesome. Well, Karthik, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate the conversation. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you haven't already done so, please read Karthik's essay, Allow Suffering to Speak, Treating the Oppressive Roots of Illness. You can find that essay at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. And while you're there, click the big orange donate button if you'd like to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, support, and scheduling from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. It is an amazing team, and they are doing some excellent work on social media, so please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when the microphone is turned around and I am the guest. That's right. Agents of Change director Ami Zoda was kind enough to listen to me babble about the first season of the podcast, some of my favorite highlights, a little bit of my history and roots in environmental justice journalism, and where we want to take this podcast. Until next time, take care, folks. Take care, folks.